Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Today is uh, <clears throat> look at the wilderness feeding story. It's one of the most famous gospel uh, tales, uh, and <clears throat> well represented in in religious art. Uh, and because these are texts that talk about food, um, I thought it would be worthwhile. <clears throat> Uh, to remind ourselves that we live in a world in which food injustice and disparity exists. Uh, as you <clears throat> see from the text on the screen here, um, in the last number of years there's been a lot of activism around the notion of food sovereignty, uh, particularly um, in places where, whether that's an inner city first world or um, uh, deeply rural third world, the global food system is broken in so many ways. Uh, and that has ecological ramifications and social ramifications. Uh, <clears throat> so it's good to remind ourselves as we look at stories of eating that stories of eating are always about community. They're always about um, sufficiency or um, disparity. Um, and, and they're always symbolic as well, because food is so fundamental to human culture. Uh, here is uh, <clears throat> a, a thumbnail uh, sketch of the history of food sovereignty, which comes out of the Via Campesina movement, which is a global movement of peasants um, that's been going now for more than 20 years. Uh, and a, a very important social movement. If you don't know about it, you might want to. Uh, <clears throat> and because we're in, in these Gospels talking about food and food consumed and produced by peasants, but often um, controlled by elites, uh, I thought it was uh, a good idea to um, <clears throat> invoke the vision of food sovereignty as an organizing principle, as a moral narrative about which, in fact, our scriptures have much to say. And here's one of the things that gets said at the close of Second Isaiah. This is a beautiful text. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money or price. Uh, you notice here the considerable irony. How do you buy something that doesn't have a price? This is a polemic that is taking place uh, in the late Bronze Age in which there's a, the beginning of, a, uh, of the penetration of a monetized economy uh, around the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, and the monetized economy means that uh, these are economic systems more and more controlled by elites and starting to uh, compromise older economic systems of exchange such as uh, barter and um, mutual aid and so on. And so this text is a bit of a protest. Um, <clears throat> why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That That's a peasant perspective um, looking at uh, elite economies. 
listen carefully, eat what is good, delight yourselves in rich food. So against the scarcity of the emerging market exchange uh, economy, um, you have this peasant vision of the abundance of a feast. Uh, that's, that's how um, traditional communities express um, their <clears throat> delight in abundance, is to hold a feast where everybody gets to eat everything. Uh, and so this is, an, uh, this is sort of an invitation to a feast in which um, money plays no part, which means no one cannot afford to be at this feast. So you, you think about this vision of Second Isaiah and, uh, <clears throat> and how deeply it resonates with um, many gospel tales, not least um, the one that we're gonna, going to look at today. Um, here again is that fourth century Byzantine mosaic of loaves and fishes that we saw on Monday. This earliest of Christian symbols reminds us that at the heart of our tradition is a commitment to food justice and sustenance for all. <clears throat> now, um, Monday we talked about the politi political economy of fishing. Today we're going to focus on the other part of this image, namely bread. Uh, a word that appears ubiquitously throughout our four Gospels. In Mark, the word artos, artan, appears 19 times two-thirds of which are in the three Markan passages related to the wilderness feedings. So that's, uh, that's going to be our, our focus this morning. Uh, the first time the term artan bread or loaf um, appears uh, <clears throat> in Mark is in Mark chapter 2, 23 to 28, which is a story about how Jesus' disciples help themselves to the produce of a local grain field, an action that, as you will recall, gets Jesus into trouble with the local village authorities. Now, this episode is the culmination of a series of three stories that are strung together. Again, you see the kind of oral style of narrative. Um, these are three stories about eating, uh, and all of them are also controversy stories in which Jesus trumps the piety of, um, uh, excuse me, um, <clears throat> a sequence which plots out Jesus' alternative ethos, um, the, his kind of second Isaiah vision of food and abundance. So the first of this series is the meal at Levi, the tax collector's house, which we looked at very briefly on Monday, this kind of a jubilee feast between um, tax collectors and um, debtors between haves and have-nots. Um, each of these little food vignettes ends with a sort of an aphorism. Um, in, in the first case, only those who uh, see the illness look for healing. The second episode in this series is a controversy over fasting, in which Jesus trumps the piety of ritual abstinence with the vision of shared abundance and the concluding aphorism is the famous one about wine um, in new wineskins. The third episode which we'll look at more closely in a moment asserts the right of hungry people to food and its conclusion asserts that the Sabbath should serve human sustainability. 
And then the overall conclusion of this series is that the human one is sovereign even over the Sabbath. But I here am going to argue that the term Sabbath and our notion of economics are really largely interchangeable. I'll try to make that case briefly. Uh, in order to do that, we have to practice a little bit of literary sociology, doing some economic mapping of the narrative settings in Mark. So the site or setting of the first pericope in this series is a table, right? Levi's table. And in terms of an economy, that's the primary site of consumption. Uh, similarly, um, the primary site of distribution is the marketplace. And the marketplace will figure prominently in, for example, Mark chapter 7. But also the culture of religious obligations, which include fasting, um, which was so important to the Pharisaic practitioners here in the second episode, um, these also are part of the culture of distribution. When when it's okay to eat, what it's okay to eat, the kosher diet and so on. These are all aspects of um, a distributive aspect of the economy. And finally, and obviously, um, the field, which is the site of the third episode in this series, um, <clears throat> that's, that's the economic site of production in an agricultural society. Or in the case of the Sea of Galilee, it would be the, the sea for the fishing economy. Uh, in other words, the landscape of Mark's drama here is an economic landscape, um, just as we saw was the case um, in, the, in the backdrop of Jesus' call of the fishermen on Monday. So I want to argue that this series is really um, a series about the political economy of food, um, and hence community integrity and justice and so on. So we talked a little bit about um, the, the meal at Levi's house at the beginning of this series. Um, <clears throat> let's look at the second, briefly at the second uh, uh, pericope. Um, here the issue is ritual versus real scarcity as symbolized by fasting and hunger. So Jesus asserts that shared abundance as expressed, for example, at a wedding banquet, remember 2nd Isaiah, that shared abundance should be the sign of the kingdom, not the privileged fasting rituals of religious piety. Now, it's important to say that Jesus acknowledges that there is indeed a time for fasting, particularly when such fasting is an expression of the disciplined resistance to oppression or the mourning of the loss uh, of a loved one. So this is the first, really, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Um, that's the first hint of what is to come uh, toward the end of this story. This is a picture that you may have seen before. Again, uh, I tend to draw on the political history of the United States. Um, but this is a picture of the great farm worker organizer, Cesar Chavez, in California, ending the first of his three hunger strikes in 1968 in support 
of um, marginalized farm workers. Um, these public hunger strikes were part of his Gandhian-style nonviolent campaign to uh, uh, to win um, living wages and uh, better working conditions for farm workers who really in our economy here in California inhabit the very lowest rung. Um, <clears throat> so here he's shown breaking uh, the 23-day fast at an outdoor mass in Delano, California, which um, was the uh, sort of center of the farm worker struggle. Um, he did it in a public park with some 4,000 supporters. It was brilliant public liturgy and indeed political theater. Um, at his side was then presidential candidate and soon to be assassinated Robert Kennedy. Um, so uh, significant was this campaign that it earned a telegram from Martin Luther King Jr. to Chavez which said, quote, our separate struggles are really one. You and your valiant fellow workers have demonstrated your commitment to righting grievous wrongs forced upon exploited people. We are together with you in spirit and determination that our dreams for a better tomorrow will be realized. That is the fast for justice that the prophet Amos envisioned so long ago. So I, I just thought this is, a, this is a nice way of recontextualizing um, Jesus' recognition that fasting can be a part of the struggle. Um, <clears throat> but it's very different when a well-fed elite is abstaining from food for purposes of religious piety um, and a um, someone in a farm worker struggle on behalf of the people who actually produce food who is using fasting as a kind of uh, part, part of a tactic in the struggle for justice. And that brings us to the third and culminating scene in this Mark and sequence in Mark 2 in which bread and indeed um, field labor is at issue. Here Jesus is challenged by local authorities about the practice of his disciples gleaning on the Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> as I'm sure you've uh, noted, you get to preach on this passage uh, in Proper 4 on June 3rd. Um, <clears throat> now, unlike the authorities here, Pharisees by name, Jesus does not understand this action as a violation, as a violation of Sabbath principles, but rather as an expression of Sabbath principles. So how can that be? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus is drawing on an aspect of the Sabbath tradition in his scriptures, his people's scriptures, which is what we might call the positive ethos of Sabbath. Sabbath is about prohibitions, yes, but it's, all, it's also about what you do allow, what you indeed are enjoined to allow. So, for example, here's a text from Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10, known as the Social Holiness Code. And it affirms the notions of what we might call gleaners' rights, the inherent right of the marginalized to sustenance at every single harvest. Do not reap your field to its very border. Um, do not strip your vineyard bare. Um, you shall leave the edges of these fields for the poor and for the sojourner. 
Now, the sojourner in the Bible is a technical, technical term for what today we would call an undocumented immigrant laborer. That is, someone who has been forced by social or economic conditions um, to leave their own land to work somewhere else just to find a livelihood. So this particular statute, <clears throat> which is repeated in several iterations in Torah, serves as a warning against the temptation for landowners to extract for their own benefit every last ounce of produce or profit from the natural resources they exploit. Um, but this text asserts that from the Creator's perspective, right, this is all a theologically grounded command, I am the Lord. From the Creator's perspective, a measure of the earth's fruits always belong intrinsically to the poor. Uh, not as a matter of charity, but as a matter of justice. So this is the kind of sabbatary principle and how it's related to Sabbath, I'll uh, explain in a minute, uh, that Jesus is drawing on. But interestingly, um, in Mark's story, Jesus now goes on the offensive in order to defend his disciples' practice of this principle. It's noteworthy that Mark's Jesus actually doesn't cite Torah's authorization for gleaning, which would have seemed to be the more logical thing to do. He could assume, however, that these Pharisees were familiar with these principles. Instead, he cheekily wonders whether they had ever read a rather obscure story about David. Of course, they knew their texts, so Jesus is tweaking them here. And then he goes on to offer a somewhat loosely rendered version of 1 Samuel 21, <clears throat> which is a story about um, the young David as a guerrilla fighter on campaign uh, commandeering nothing less than the bread of the presence for his soldiers um, from one of the regional uh, cultic sites. This implies Jesus is much a much more serious transgression than merely gleaning from a field. You think what we're doing is bad, he's arguing. What about the father of our nation and what he did? So you can see the, the brilliance of this kind of uh, verbal ripost. But Jesus has added something to the story, practicing a little bit of classic rabbinic midrash. Um, in Jesus' version, David and his followers were justified in violating the sacred precinct of the sanctuary because they were hungry and in need of food. And that from Jesus' point of view, is the moral to both his story and the action of his disciples. Namely, hungry people have a right to food despite whatever laws might restrict such access. Human hunger trumps proprietary boundaries of both cult and property. So, that's a pretty radical principle still today, um, and, uh, and it's one that um, shows why these eating stories 
became controversy stories. So I'm suggesting that this little string in Mark II um, <coughs> can and should be read as a strong protest over the politics of food in Jewish Palestine. Uh, and as you can see here, uh, first century uh, sociologist, uh, uh, scholar of first century um, Palestinian Judaism, um, Doug Oakman, talks about the fact that just as the fishing industry was being structurally adjusted at this time, so the royal reorganization of production meant that wheat, wine, and oil were being transformed from subsistence staples for the peasant class and the, the farm worker class to estate crops destined either for the urban storehouse or for Mediterranean commerce. So in other words, the same thing that was being done in the uh, political economy of the fishing industry was also being done in agriculture. So here in Mark II, at Levi's house, haves and have-nots share transgressive table fellowship. In the fasting debate, Jesus argues that the poor need shared abundance, not religious abstinence. And the grain field civil disobedience action reasserts the biblical vision of what I'm going to call Sabbath economics by reauthorizing the work of gleaning on the Sabbath as the divinely ordained right of hungry people. This sequence, in other words, argues for the inherent right of human beings to an adequate food supply, or what we would call food sovereignty. That <coughs> seems to be why, as Jesus puts, puts it in the conclusion to this episode, um, to paraphrase, the Sabbath tradition should be at the service of humanity, not vice versa, Mark 2.27. And because the heart of the Sabbath tradition is in fact economic justice for all, as we'll see in a moment, we could uh, legitimately paraphrase Jesus' teaching here as the economy is supposed to serve people. People are not supposed to be sacrificed to economics. Or as the modern slogan puts it, food for people, not for profit. In all of these ways, then, Mark tries to show that the human one, here's the um, introduction now of this moniker that Jesus will refer to his, um, his mission in the third person, the human one is sovereign even over the Sabbath, which is to say, even over economics, which, quite frankly, would be a news bulletin in most of our churches. <laughs> So all of this serves to uh, serves as background for our exploration of Mark's wilderness feeding. Um, now, the wilderness feeding obviously is important to Mark, um, such that he narrates um, very similar scenarios not once but twice. Uh, repetition being the key to pedagogy, uh, and I want to look at these as sort of demonstration projects of what. I'm calling here Sabbath economics. Now, <clears throat> Mark's twinning of episodes here is part of the larger narrative strategy of the first half of the gospel story. So this is nuancing the, the outline that you've been working with of Mark's gospel in a little finer detail. Uh, so in the first and second campaigns of the first half of Mark, 
we find roughly two parallel cycles of ministry um, corresponding to different sides of the Sea of Galilee across which the disciples are traversing in a boat, encountering storms, and so on. Um, and when you sort of abstract it here, you see that on each side of the sea, um, there's a sort of what I, what I would call an archetypal and inaugural exorcism. The first one happening in a Jewish synagogue in Mark 1, the second one being the Gerasene demoniac story that we looked at yesterday. Each of these cycles has paired healings. Jairus' daughter and the woman in, with the flow in, of blood in the Jewish cycle, uh, and the Syrophoenician woman and um, the deaf and the mute man in the Gentile cycle in Mark 7. And each of these cycles has um, a feeding of the multitudes in the wilderness story, which are very similar, although also exhibit interesting um, differences in which the second feeding sort of moves the plot um, forward in some distinctive ways. Um, and each of these feeding stories, in turn, ends with a sort of conundrum about um, the mystery of the loaves, or uh, more specifically, in the second cycle, the mystery of the one loaf. Uh, a fascinating little um, um, mystery story, which I would encourage you to maybe try to chase down in, uh, in some studies or in a sermon, even though you don't get to preach on either of the feeding wilderness stories in the year be lectionary. Oh, well. Neither Bill nor I were on that committee. <laughs> um, so we pick up the story with the completion of the second boat crossing story in Mark chapter 6 verse 30. The emphasis here is upon the remoteness of the setting but also upon the importunate press of the crowds. People who as we'll see are marginalized and hungry. Right so interesting how often this issue comes up. Many were coming and going but they didn't have the space even to eat. Um, this is such a huge issue in the first half of Mark's Gospel, um, whether or not people have enough to eat. So Jesus is again pictured teaching the masses. This is a refrain in, in Mark's Gospel where uh, you know things are happening, people are coming together, Jesus is teaching. Uh, the famous story that follows, as I mentioned, is unaccount uh, unaccountably not in the year B lectionary, um, <clears throat> but it is worth our time and attention. Um, the crowd gathers, Jesus has compassion on them, they're like sheep without a shepherd, that's an allusion to um, uh, a dialogue between uh, Moses and Aaron in the book of Joshua, uh, and he begins to teach them, and it grows late. Now here, um, the disciples commit um, the first of what will be many, many blunders to come. Um, they say, uh, well, here we are in this deserted place. That's, that's one of the, the wilderness, Eremon, the, the archetype um, that 
uh, Bill is working with you on that appears so often in the narrative, this deserted place, the hour is late, send the people away so that they may go into the surrounding country villages and buy something for themselves to eat. Um, so again you hear this faint echo of second Isaiah. Um, how are these people supposed to buy themselves something to eat if they don't have any money? Uh, and even if the food were available at the local, local market villages, which it likely would not be late at night, even if they could get there. So there's sort of layers of poignant um, drama here. And Jesus' response is what we might term rather abrupt and dismissive um, to their concern, um, but what in fact is in the history of the church a rather chilling response. It's as if Jesus suddenly turns and faces the camera and says to us, I have a better idea, you feed them. <laughs> Don't rely on market forces. Take responsibility for this scarcity. Uh, I really do think this is a, uh, a challenging and chilling um, uh, part of Jesus' word to the discipleship community. Uh, now comes um, the second deepening misunderstanding or blunder. Um, because the disciples clearly don't get what he's talking about. Um, they do some quick math in their heads, um, looking at the crowd, thinking of how much bread costs, and complain, what, we're supposed to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and then give the bread to them to eat? You can see the protest is about scale, it's about scarcity, it's about we're supposed to buy stuff and then give it away, um, it's, it's about market anxiety. Um, this moment really becomes a parable of the church's reluctance to embrace the vocation of Sabbath economics. So I want you to remember this moment when we review some, uh, some of the intertextual illusions that are going on here in a minute. Uh, well, Jesus once again kind of shrugs off their ambivalence and sets about community organizing. He determines the capacity of the community and then organizes people into small groups. What's key here is to recognize that in this narrative there's actually no mention of any kind of supernatural multiplication. Instead, the focus is upon the reorganization of the community of consumption to embrace its own capacity to practice mutual aid. Only cooperation can turn market scarcity into shared sufficiency. And of course, that is the real miracle because that sort of reorganization is no easy task as any organizer for economic justice will tell you. Can you say that it, again, please? That, that what's, what we're actually seeing, that is what Mark is showing us, is not a miracle of multiplication, however many times the story is called that. What we're being shown is the miracle of community reorganization. 
in which they determine what they have on hand, they organize themselves, and they distribute it so everyone has enough. Uh, now, it may be here that there's an implied multiplica multiplication, but I would urge us to rather focus on how Jesus is um, working on a kind of community cooperation here. Uh, you know the old story of stone soup. It's a, the, what takes place is a work of grace and redistribution, not magical multiplication. Jesus blesses, breaks, and distributes. More on that in a moment because that's important. Here, however, we're simply told that everyone had enough. Um, indeed, had more than enough. <clears throat> um, now, in this rich story, there are multiple layers of intertextuality or allusion to narratives in the, in the Hebrew scripture, narratives that would have been circulating orally in the tradition from uh, the Exodus story, from the Elijah cycle, uh, and we, we want to focus on these two. So, um, what we're told here is that everybody had enough. So here there's several allusions to the story of the manna in the wilderness that we find in Exodus 16, right? Um, what are those allusions? Well, the setting is the wilderness. It's that remote place. The plot is bread being provided for hungry crowds. And the punchline is that there's enough for everyone. So that's clearly, um, that's clearly uh, a manna story. And that's something that John's Gospel sees very clearly and makes explicit. Uh, so John's version of the story underlines the connection. People are trying to make sense of the wilderness feeding. To do so, they draw on the central sign of their sacred story, the ancestral history of the manna in the wilderness. This, this reference here in John 6, 30 and 31 is very significant since it's the only time that the word manna appears in the entire gospel tradition. So let's look at the allusion to Exodus 16 a little more closely and carefully because I believe it's very significant. Um, <clears throat> you, you, see the, you see the similarities that, that I've um, just uh, summarized. Uh, in going back to Exodus 16, we're going back to some of the foundational stories of uh, biblical faith. It's important to remember that the story of Torah is a narrative about and by people who were on the bottom of the social pyramid, um, originating in Imperial Egypt. So the protagonists of this story are slaves, not rulers. That's very important to uh, keep reminding ourselves because we are reading these texts from a very different social location. And that means we often miss stuff like the economics of it. Um, now, the salvation narrative in the Hebrew Bible is, of course, animated by this massive uh, labor strike or walkout that we know as the Exodus. Uh, and <clears throat> no sooner are the Israelites freed from Egypt, we are told, then they begin to long for the security of slavery. 
like modern North Americans, they couldn't imagine an economic system apart from the Egyptian political, military, technological complex in which they had been formed. So they famously complain in Exodus 16 in the wilderness, proving that as the old African-American proverb puts it, it's easier to get the people out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of the people. In response to this uh, bitching and moaning, uh, God responds, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. Exodus 16.4. But this promise is not a cheap rescue miracle. Again, I'm trying to point to the deeper um, social meaning of these tales. Um, actually, it's an expression of the divine cosmology of grace. God provides for our needs through the creation. So, literally, according to this cosmology, bread does rain from heaven. How does that work? Well, look, for example, at Isaiah 55, same text with which we started. Um, the rain and the snow fall from heaven, and they water the earth, and they make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Voila, bread from heaven. Uh, and we miss that because we don't come from a cosmology of grace and gift, but from a peasant point of view, the idea of sustenance reigning from heaven, of sustenance being given as a gift um, from the earth, that makes sense to how they look at the world. Nor is the manna story just about trusting God to provide, as we all learned in Sunday school. And by the way, the manna story only ever gets taught in Sunday school because it's seen as a kind of a children's story that we capitalist adults couldn't possibly take seriously. The text says very specifically that this is not about trust. This is a test, a test to see whether the Israelites will follow instructions on how to realize Yahweh's alternative economy. To see whether they'll follow my instructions or not. Exodus 16, 4b. So there are three instructions, and these represent the foundation of what I call Sabbath economics. Lesson number one. The people of Israel gathered, some more, some less. But those who gathered much did not gather too much, and those who gathered little had enough. This is a specific censure of the economic conditions of both affluence and poverty. In God's economy, uh, even if people have different amounts, no one has too much and no one has too little. Friends, those are economic principles, and they're introduced as lesson number one to free Israel. Biblical scholar Ellen Davis points out that this vision of Exodus 16 contrasts sharply with how fields were harvested in ancient Egypt uh, in her book, Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, which is a great read, by the way. Uh, you're seeing a fresco 
which uh, Egyptian fresco, which pictures you see the ruler in his little uh, tent, uh, protected from the sun, uh, in the upper left-hand corner, and he's uh, the manager, always measuring, making sure the peasants are handing over exactly enough, otherwise they they will be punished. Uh, in contrast, the picture of Exodus 16 is of Israelites freely gathering the gift of the Creator with no rulers looking down upon them, no managers weighing their take, only a benevolent Creator. So it's a radically different picture of an economy. That's instruction number one. Instruction number two is that the manna should not be stored up. Exodus 16, 19, and 20. Now again, the Egyptian economy, the imperial economy, was one in which wealth and power trickled up. It was defined by surplus accumulation. Hence, we read in the Exodus story that Israel's, Israel's forced labor consisted of building store cities, right, for the tribute and the plunder of empire to be stored up for the elites. They set taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them, and they built the supply cities. So again, in Exodus 16, the liberated Israelites are enjoined by God to keep wealth circulating, not concentrating. Or as a certain 19th century sociologist put it, whose name, Karl Marx, will not be named, um, accumulation accumulation, accumulation. That is the law and the profits of capitalism. But it's not the law and the profits of scripture. The third instruction, voila, introduces for the first time the communal discipline of keeping Sabbath. Uh, <clears throat> Sabbath is a creation principle, but here in Torah is its first appearance as a communal um, ethos. That's why I'm calling this Sabbath economics. Uh, now, we Christians tend to regard the Sabbath as, at best, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, and at worst, as a quaint Jewish custom. But I want to remind us that, narratively speaking, in Torah, this injunction is instituted even before the covenant at Sinai. Moreover, it is reiterated at the conclusion of the covenant code part of Exodus as a life and death issue. Exodus 31, 12 to 17, Moses comes down the mountain and is reminded, oh, by the way, keep the Sabbath or you will die. In that sense, Sabbath is the beginning and end of Torah. Why? Because Sabbath is much more than a prescribed periodic rest for the land and human labor, although it is that. It is, in fact, the bedrock of a culture of constraint. These prohibitions and affirmations function to disrupt our compulsive attempts to control nature, our addictive need to maximize the forces of production. Sabbath in other words, is fundamentally an ethos of human self-limitation, something our modern culture 
seems both unable and unwilling to do. So to summarize, these three instructions represent the primal lessons for a free people. The purpose of economic organization is to guarantee enough for everyone. And that will only happen if the gift is distributed equitably, if it circulates rather than concentrates, and if limits are established. It isn't hard to see how crucial this kind of very old wisdom is to our current end game of economic extraction, wealth disparity, and ecological destruction. However, it's also true that we modern folk, like Israel of old, just don't get these instructions. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, <clears throat> every single one of these principles run diametrically opposed to the capitalist principles of private wealth, accumulative wealth, and no limits to production or consumption. So we fight their logic with all our sophisticated might. The old story, therefore, anticipates our resistance with a bit of humor. The word manna is a strange, somewhat an untranslatable Hebrew term that seems to mean, what? What, what the hell is this stuff? Uh, which is to say we don't recognize the gift and we don't recognize the ethics of how to gather the gift because like the Israelites of old, we have been raised watching Egyptian television, attending Egyptian schools, believing in Egyptian habits of consumption. But let's make no mistake, this manna was the central object lesson for the people of God in Torah. So much so that an exception of not um, storing it was made so that a jar of it was to be taken and placed in front of the altar for all generations to remember these three principles, Sabbath economics. Unfortunately for us, it seems that somewhere along the way somebody misplaced the jar. And so we have forgotten these principles. And yet, the Sabbath economics ethos runs throughout Torah and indeed the prophets um, in multiple expressions, such as the seventh year cessation of cultivation in order that our artificial human economy does not destroy the economy of nature. Exodus 23. Notice that an untended field goes back to the commonwealth and the poor and wild animals can help themselves. Or the Levitical principle that we saw that came up in Mark 2, uh, that at every harvest the poor have the right to glean. That's a Sabbath economic principle. Or seven-year debt forgiveness in Deuteronomy 15, which of course is then developed into the super Sabbath of the Jubilee year in Leviticus 25. Deconstructing economic stratification so it doesn't become permanent. This biblical vision arose from a cosmology of gift and grace, and it meant to shape the ethos of a community committed to the values of equality and sufficiency for everyone. Now, of course, 
Israel's wealthy classes forgot those instructions, uh, but her prophets did not, which is why Isaiah excoriates the nation's leadership for crushing the marginalized like grain. And Amos denounces those who make profits on the backs of the poor. These lessons may have not been very consistently embodied by subsequent Israelite society, but they certainly animated the political imagination of the prophets, <clears throat> and for that matter, of Jesus. I've outlined uh, these strands or footprints of Sabbath economics in a little booklet, which you might be interested to know that I wrote in 2001 in, of all places, Dr. Bill Richards' home in Saskatoon, where Elaine and I were house-sitting one summer. Thank you, Bill. Uh, it's not hard to see these footprints in Mark's loaves and fishes story. Uh, so that's kind of stating the obvious. But Mark's portrait of the disciples' anxiety about how to feed so many people on so few resources alludes to a yet, uh, uh, yet another old tradition upon which Mark is drawing, but one which we're probably not as familiar with. And that is the story of the great prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, <clears throat> the setting of these stories is important. They take place during a time of famine. Now, in the Bible, famine is understood not just as an unfortunate natural disaster, but is the result also of human economic systems of greed. We have a case in point of that of the story of Joseph managing famine to benefit Pharaoh in uh, Genesis 48 to 50. Like Hurricane Irma this summer in Houston, or the Thomas Fire here in Ventura last month, natural cycles turn into social disasters because of political and economic conditions of disparity. Elisha thus encounters a scene in which local people are driven to desperation by economic breakdown, so much so that they have to go back to foraging and hunting and gathering, uh, which they don't do very successfully in the story of the wild gourds made into a soup that ensue here in Second Kings chapter 4. But after that soup story comes a bread story. Once again, we have a situation of a relatively small number of loaves and too many people, 2 Kings 4, 42-44. Elisha instructs the man from Baal Shalisha, and if you're ever feeling down, just repeat that name over and over, and it'll cheer you right up. Baal Shalisha, Baal Shalisha. This man is coming, bringing bread, and Elisha instructs him to give it to the people to eat. Here now you see the echo of Jesus saying to the disciples, you feed them, that frightening line. And here, as in the gospel story, the prophet's command is met with incredulity. But, but how, where, when, how much doesn't pencil out. 
so much incredulity that Elisha has to repeat himself. No, seriously, you distribute it. And then he adds that the God of Israel will ensure not only that there will be enough, but there will be some left over. And once again, no magic is recorded. All we're told, but the word of the Lord prevails, transforming the situation of artificial scarcity into a celebration of God's communal abundance. We're told that indeed they ate and had some left. Now, <clears throat> it is of particular interest that the loaves brought to Elisha were made from new grain, barley grain. They were barley loaves, inferring that these loaves were actually being carried um, to a Shavuot service, the offering of first fruits. This would have barley loaves were the normal offering made for the early harvest feast of Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks that we find in Leviticus 23, verse 15 and following. In the ritual, the loaves are offered by the priests back to God in a ritual of gratitude. Um, and presumably the men carrying them in the Elisha story had intended to do just that. So in this social crisis, Elisha redirects them away from the cult toward those in need. Uh, echoes of the Mark 2 story of Jesus in the grain field. Elijah, in other words, is acting in the spirit of Shavuot. Since there is a close correspondence, note this, Close correspondence in what we might call the liturgical calculations concerning the timing of the harvest feast of first fruits, the feast of weeks, and that of the biblical jubilee. From the day of Sabbath, you bring the sheaf of offering, count off seven weeks, and on the 50th day, the jubilee, count off seven weeks of years, and on the 50th year, you shall proclaim liberty. This parallel reminds Israel that Sabbath economics as a redistributive ethic applied not just every 50th year, but at every single harvest. And that is what the rituals were supposed to remind us. Now, of course, Shavuot was referred to later at the time of Jesus as the Feast of Pentecost. Hence, 50 days. Jesus feeding in the wilderness, therefore, in some sense, refers forward to the first Eucharist recording in the life of the Easter church in Acts 2. After all, the story of the church and the power of the Spirit begins and ends with radically redistributive moments. Beginning with the redistribution of cultural power in the distribution of tongues, Notice how the Greek verb here is the same at the beginning of Acts 2 and at the end of Acts 2 where they distribute their possessions as any had need. In other words, this is a realization of Shavuot as a feast and a practice of Sabbath economics. Well, speaking of Eucharist, there's one more intertextual aspect 
to Mark's wilderness feeding that we should notice before we close. <clears throat> notice the verbs that appear when in the wilderness, Mark 6.42, Jesus takes the loaves, looks up to heaven, blesses them, and breaks them, and gives them to the disciples. Take, bless, break, give. Now, <clears throat> it's true that this vocabulary is almost exactly the same as used in Mark's Last Supper story. And there is no doubt that Mark wanted us to notice it. But here's a conundrum. Most theologians and preachers, if they notice this parallel at all, uh, would read the Last Supper back into the wilderness feeding. Ah, they say, here is the proper spiritual way to read the loaves and fishes story. It's not really about economic mutual aid. It's a foreshadowing of the mystery of the Eucharist, or something like that. And yet, narrative common sense suggests that we should read the later episode in light of the former, not vice versa. Moreover, as we have seen, the allusions in Mark's wilderness feeding point not so much forward to the Eucharist, but backward to the earlier sacred stories of the Jewish tradition. On one hand, Jesus is um, reenacting the Exodus 16 vision that stipulates a Sabbath economics ethos. On the other hand, there's the allusion to the Elisha story and its echoes of the Sabbath economics of Shavuot. These prophetic texts provide the lens through which to interpret the story of the wilderness feeding, and the wilderness feeding, in turn, ought to provide the lens through which we understand the Eucharist story in Mark 14. The real worlds of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, or of Elisha during famine, or of Jesus amidst the impoverished masses of Palestine in the first century, were characterized by widespread hunger and poverty that resulted from a feudal system of land ownership and from an extractive economic system that benefited the elite while disenfranchising the poor. And in our own global economy, <clears throat> that system has not yet been banished. In such worlds, economic practices of enough and then some for everyone are miraculous indeed, both then and now. So I want to pose a question for us to reflect on a little. What would it mean for us to interpret the gestures of our Eucharistic meal, take, bless, break, give, in light of the Sabbath economics of the wilderness feeding? The question we might ask today is, when we do this in memory of, what exactly is it that we are remembering? Is it only the death of Jesus? Or is it not also the life of Jesus, very particularly a life that organized itself around the vision of Sabbath economics? What if every time our churches celebrated the Lord's Supper, in whatever different ways we celebrate that ritual meal, 
we were remembering lessons number one, two, and three of Sabbath economics and the ongoing struggle of enough for everyone. I want to pose that question to you and um, <clears throat> invite us to debrief that together. Uh, and as you're thinking about that, I close um, as we began, namely <clears throat> that food sovereignty is the right of people to define their food and their agriculture to protect and regulate production and trade. Um, these are fundamental human rights to promote sustainable food economies. And I want to uh, <clears throat> close with a story. <coughs> Excuse me. Here in Southern California in the Ventura River watershed where we live, we, uh, our, most cl our closest partners are an ecumenical um, sort of Episcopal based project called the Abundant Table Farm Project. This project began 10 years ago in part inspired by a Bible study um, in which we did this reading of the loaves and fishes a decade ago. Coming out of that visioning, um, this group of young women under 40 um, started this community-supported agriculture uh, <clears throat> project which leases land. Nobody has enough money to own land, so it's kind of an itinerant farming community that um, produces organic vegetables um, and works on farm worker justice. And uh, <clears throat> in the course of this project, <clears throat> uh, a couple of farm workers who were captive to the industrial fields um, of uh, <clears throat> big time uh, ag uh, were rescued and have become the curators of this small farm uh, <clears throat> together with these um, women. And it's just such a beautiful story. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a liturgical community, it's a farming community, it's a justice community, and it's all based on the vision of Sabbath economics and very particularly the vision of an abundant table as expressed in the loaves and fishes. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.